0: Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. Over my many years of practicing employment law, I've noticed a few common misperceptions about the law that seem to persist over time. I call these employment law myths. People often react with surprise, sometimes even anger, when I push back on these myths. I should also mention that many myths have some element of truth to them, but also have a lot of assumptions or misperceptions as well. There are several employment law myths out there today, but I'm going to look at five that consistently come up in practice, and as promised in the title of this episode, I will explode them. So grab some ear protection and let's get started. Myth number one. You can protect your business from a lawsuit by not telling the employee the reason for termination. I've been hearing this one from business owners, managers, and even some human resources people for the entire time I've been practicing employment law, and I still can't figure out where it came from. As an aside, I've seen this asserted in situations where the employer has a great reason for termination and where the reason is, shall we say, suspect. The general idea seems to be that if the employee does not know why they were terminated, they cannot bring a lawsuit. This is simply not true, and in fact, not being clear about the reason for termination is more likely to result in a lawsuit than being brutally honest will. There are two basic facts that support my position. First, a lot of people are lacking in self-awareness regarding their work performance and behavior in general. It is inconceivable to such people that they are anything other than a great employee. Second, due to the media and our current cultural moment, there's a lot of paranoia about discrimination of all kinds. Factor these issues into the equation, and it's only natural that someone who's been given no indication of why they're being terminated will naturally assume the worst and seek legal counsel. The far better approach is to be brutally honest when terminating an employee. Tell them exactly what was wrong with their performance or conduct, give them specific examples, and leave nothing out. This approach is far more likely to dissuade a former employee or their attorney from pursuing claims than leaving the reason a mystery. Myth number two, forcing an employee to resign is better than a termination. This is another gem that comes up frequently. The scenario is usually something like this. An employee is brought in and told they can resign today or be terminated. Often some prepared, written resignation is ready for them to sign. Because many people are embarrassed by being terminated from a job, many employees will sign the resignation. But what does this actually accomplish? The employer who does this often says, You, employee, cannot sue me for terminating your employment. You quit. Remember? Here's the resignation you signed. Well, the problem with this is that the employee did not actually make a voluntary choice to quit. They were plainly told that their employment was ending, and it was up to them to decide how it is recorded. If they visit an attorney, the resignation will not hold up for that very reason. It is essentially an involuntary termination. Employers often rely on these kinds of actions to avoid unemployment claims, but in my experience, that doesn't really work either. This myth also goes along with myth number one in many cases, and the better approach is the same. If you have decided to part ways with an employee, be clear about the decision and the reasons for the decision. Myth number three. The employer and or the employee can decide on whether the employee is paid on an hourly or a salary basis. Myth number three never seems to go away. Maybe part of the reason is that the law in this area is so complex, and the hourly or salary distinction is not really the key issue, although it is what most laypeople focus on. Initially, the key distinction is whether the employee is exempt or non-exempt, meaning are they paid overtime for hours over 40 in a week, or are they paid a flat amount for all hours worked? The key point here is that this is not a choice for either the employer or the employee to make, nor is it a matter of them coming to an agreement on the issue. Rather, there are a number of exemptions based on the specific job duties of the employee that determine whether they are exempt or non-exempt. For example, employees who spend the majority of their time supervising two or more employees and are paid above a statutory minimum rate are exempt and do not need to be paid overtime. Similarly, the so-called learned professional exemption applies to certain professionals like doctors and lawyers. Again, the job duties dictate the exemption, and it's never simply a matter of agreement on how the employee is paid, although this is what many people think. But wait, it is a bit more complicated. Again, the real issue to focus on is whether the employee is compensated extra for hours above 40 in a work week. That is, are they entitled to overtime pay? I'm discussing federal law here, so bear in mind that some state laws vary and, for example, calculate overtime on a daily basis. Nevertheless, it is possible to pay non-exempt employees a salary as long as you also track hours and pay overtime for hours over 40. I will tell you that it is an administrative headache and most employers don't do it, but it is possible. Similarly, you can pay anyone an hourly rate without violating the law, but this can also be a tricky area and it is better to pay exempt employees on a salary basis in most cases. So the bottom line is that employers do have some leeway in choosing how to pay employees, but it's more complicated than most employers think. This is an area where you should consult with Employment Law Counsel if you have concerns. The consequences of getting this wrong can be very expensive and it's an area that is almost always best discussed under the protection of attorney-client privilege. Myth number 4. Restrictive covenants are completely enforceable. I've heard this one many times as well. Usually a former employee with a non-compete goes to a competitor and starts violating their agreement. When the litigation or threats of litigation start, the former employer learns that the agreement that called for two years of no competition in a 100-mile radius will not be enforced strictly as written. Instead, the employer might have to settle for one year and a 50-mile radius, or even less, and that may be a best-case scenario. The simple fact is that courts, like most employees, do not like restrictive covenants, and they rarely enforce them as written. In states like Ohio, courts will enforce restricted covenants on a limited basis, and judges have the authority to essentially rewrite the agreements and change the terms and make them reasonable. Of course, there is a good deal of subjectivity in this process, and different judges may not on a, may not agree on what is reasonable. So in any case, there is uncertainty about the outcome, despite the often clear language of the agreement the employee signed. I get it, this is frustrating for the employer who wants to protect their business, But it is the way it is, and in some states, it's even harder to enforce restrictive covenants than it is in Ohio. As noted, Ohio judges will reform an agreement, meaning they can change the terms and make it reasonable. Some states only allow judges to cross out sections of an agreement if that will make it reasonable. These are called blue-pencil states. Other states take an all-or-nothing approach. Either the agreement is reasonable as written, or it's voided completely. The one common factor is that these kinds of restrictive covenants, whether non-compete or non-solicitation, are almost never enforced as written. In addition, there is growing hostility to non-competes, and the FTC rule uh, that everybody has heard so much about is out there. It hasn't been enacted yet, but it would ban non-competes altogether, so it's only going to get more difficult. Does this mean that there's nothing employers can do? No. But this area is getting more and more complicated, and employers need to focus more closely on strategy and planning to achieve their goals. Alright, we are to the last myth of this episode, and this one may be a little controversial. Myth number five. The at-will employment doctrine provides protection for employers. The at-will employment doctrine. You know it, you love it. Every state except Montana is an at-will state by default. At-will employment means that employment is for no set term, and either party can terminate the employment relationship for any reason at any time. If someone only knows one thing about employment law, it's usually some form of the definition of at-will employment. In simple terms, at-will employment says you can quit or be terminated any time either party decides it's over. It's the ultimate low-pressure relationship. Or is it? What does it really mean today? I left a little something out of my definition. You can be terminated for any reason that is not contrary to the law. And that little clause is the exception that mostly swallows the rule. If you think of at-will employment as a pie, the government has taken pieces out of the at-will pie. For example, Title VII takes several pieces out of the pie, creating several reasons you cannot terminate someone. On the basis of race, national origin, etc., the ADA takes another piece, for disability, and so forth and so on. The problem today is that there's not much pie left, just a few sad little crumbs, really. And the larger problem is that so many employers vastly overestimate the significance of the at-will employment doctrine. I often hear things like, well, you don't have to worry about terminating this employee. He's at-will, so he can't do anything. This simply ignores that at-will employment does not trump other statutory protections and so almost every termination requires a good reason because today there are so many protections that almost every employee may qualify for something. So what are all those at-will employers' d- disclaimers you see in handbooks, agreements, and offer letters good for? Well, I'm not suggesting you do away with them. The main thing they're good for now is to shut down claims of contract of, uh, of employment contracts. An at-will employee does not have a contractual right to employment by definition, so it's still helpful to classify employees as at-will and avoid these types of claims. But in the current legal environment, it's a myth that at-will, employers, that at-will employment gives employers any significant protection from legal claims when terminating employees. This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts, and if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com, and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up-to-date, we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional legal counsel.